Welcome to Spark Science. I'm your host, Regina Barber DeGraff, and I teach physics and astronomy at Western Washington University. In this episode, we get to talk about the mRNA vaccine with my friend and colleague, Dr. Suzanne Lee. In our previous episode, we spoke with an infectious disease specialist on the status of the COVID-19 pandemic and how vaccines can definitely help. This time, we are speaking with Dr. Lee, an assistant professor here at WW, regarding her research on RNA pathways. Let's take a closer look at just how these new vaccines work. I am here with an awesome biologist, somebody I've known for a long time, Dr. Suzanne Lee. Aw, thanks. It's super awesome to be on your show. I'm a big fan, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wanted to bring you on because actually one of the students that works on this show, we have, we have student volunteers that edit the show and give me ideas and help me storyboard. And one of them is a biology major. And he um, wants to talk about the RNA vaccines. He asked about that. And um, you, your research is with RNA. So we're going to go back in time and, and talk about your path to your research. I wouldn't say I was really science leaning until I was in college. Uh, growing up, I was pretty sheltered and pretty much a homebody. And like, I really didn't go anywhere. So like, it just wasn't really, I was, I was definitely like a, an avid reader, but I read, you know, just storybooks and things like that. And, and you know this, Regina, I wanted to go into the performing arts. Like that was like my secret passion, but it was, but it was definitely secret because <laughs> My parents are, if, if they listen to this, they'll be. <laughs> and they are going to listen to it. And they're going to be ashamed. No, no, um, <laughs> no I, I ended up not going into the performing arts, but I, but I love the performing arts so much. I mean, I just loved the communication and the storytelling that's a part of the performing arts and that connection with the people that you're, you know, telling a story with and to, but, you know, it was not a very practical career path. And so I started taking pre-med classes to basically satisfy the parents who <laughs> really wanted me to be a doctor. And that of course was like intro bio and intro chem. And I actually did really poorly in my intro chem class. My very first semester, I got like a D minus on, on one of the, you know, one of the major exams. And I was like, oh. But on the exam, not on the final <laughs> grade. I know you pulled out of that, right? Yeah. And the only reason how I managed to pull out of that was because that particular instructor um, had this wonderful policy of like dropping the lowest grade. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, you know, I was, I was not, I was not so into science initially and biology. We were talking about a little bit about this before we started that biology just seemed to me like a lot of memorization. I've never been particularly good at memorizing a bunch of things that like terms, um, if it's not something that is like deeply in interesting to me, like, I'm just not, that's never been my thing. And like, and so I, you know, I just wasn't really into it, but then uh, I took a chemistry class from this awesome professor slash mentor, Dr. David Haynes at my college. And he was a chemistry professor. He taught intro chem and he also taught organic chemistry. And organic chemistry is like the chemistry of biological reactions is kind of how I think of it. And he kind of helped me realize that I really loved, like I really got into the kind of problem solving of of science. It was really like through organic chemistry, but like kind of uncovering how things work. I realized I was really interested in that aspect of science, like, and 
the memorization maybe just be just sort of like learning a language, but that like really that was to be able to like understand how things work. And then I needed to earn some money in college. And so I stumbled on a research opportunity in the summer in New York City. And I was like, performing arts, New York City, like Broadway's there. Oh my God. Is it like a summer? Is like a summer internship? It was Where like a you... summer research program. Yeah. But you went to undergrad in San Diego, right? No, no, I was an undergraduate um, just outside of Boston in a small okay. college. Okay. Mm-hmm. But you did go to the, San Diego was grad school or? Uh, San Diego, I eventually got to San Diego in my postdoc. So many. many postdoc, okay. Okay, so you're outside of Boston. You want to do a summer thing in New York. Yeah, okay. I want to do a summer thing in New York. <laughs> like the, there were like, there was this hook, I think, in the advertisements of like fun excursions that you could go on, you know, like including Broadway shows. And that's like, I am there. <laughs> um, and, and, but it, it placed me in a cancer biology lab, um, which kind of opened my eyes to this, this like different view of biology. You know, it wasn't like mind numbing memorization, but it was like, detective work. Um, And there was a kind of nice melding of chemistry and biology in the field of molecular biology, which is ultimately kind of that was that was what pulled me into studying biology and and biochemistry, basically. And so yeah, so that was kind of how I got in, I would say. And then um, from there, I, I ended up majoring in in biological chemistry as an undergraduate. Um, And then when I graduated, I like when I got close to graduating, I wasn't really sure what I wanted and I wanted to do and I was still trying to like, okay, maybe I can like do science, but still do the med school thing. If I try to think about like MD, PhD programs, but those are, you know, medical school, if I do medical school, that might be really expensive. So I got to work for a while. That was my like argument. (laughs) for why I needed to like, just work for a while. And so I worked for a while in a lab um, in Boston as a research assistant. And that was an awesome time of life just generally, because it was, you know, working as a scientist in the lab, learning a lot and also getting to play a lot and like do some like local theater. Um, And then I kind of got to a point where I um, felt like I had, (laughs) I just, I sort of remember I got to a point where I felt like I had kind of ex- like hit hit a ceiling in what I was being allowed to do in the lab. And I remember I worked really hard to like figure out how to do some kind of microscopy experiment. And I was taking too long. And my advisor, who is, this was a wonderful person, Dr. S- Stephen Balk um, in Boston. He was like, ah, Suzanne, you know, like, I know you spent some time on this, but actually I'm just gonna have someone else do that experiment. And what? I got really mad. Yeah, yeah. I got really mad. And I was I like, and I remember, you know, whatever I was probably what, not 21 or something. I remember I went up to Dr. Balk and I was like, Steve, if I were a grad student or a postdoc, like that would be so not cool. <laughs> but like, I understand right. I'm just a research assistant. <laughs> and I look back at that and I laugh. I mean, he took it so well. <laughs> And he was like, you need to go to grad school. <laughs> so that sort of led me to grad school. And, 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 you know, I realized I was just really interested in the, the fundamentals of how things work and that lots of respect to, to doctors, you know, you know, all over. Um, but for me, I realized that I was, I was just really into the problem solving and like the discovery of a detective work. I went to Berkeley for my, my graduate degree and then 
traveled around a bit after that. I did my postdoc. First year, my postdoc was in Boulder, Colorado. And then I ended up in San Diego because the lab moved to San Diego. But as a postdoc, I took a class that was about kind of approaching teaching like you approach science and sort of trying to figure out what's going on with students and then making sure that you're really supporting students and all of your students. And that got me really excited to think about teaching and sort of integrating my love of science with teaching um, and mentoring. And that is really, I think, what you know, put me into looking for positions like the one I have at Western where I get to basically do it all. Like I, I love getting to work with students. I love it so much. And I love getting to have a little lab and get to have that lab be someplace where we're, me and my students, we're trying to figure out what's going on, how things work. This is Spark Science, and we're talking to Dr. Suzanne Lee about the mRNA vaccines and the science behind them. Let's tell a story of how these mRNA vaccines work, because I know that when this happened, I remember you talking to me and how excited you were. I know, help our listeners understand what this mRNA um, vaccine yeah, is. Yeah, it, it is just so amazing to me that, you know, what might lead us out of this mess is RNA. I mean, and, and it's so much fun. People are probably are pretty familiar now with like kind of these images of the coronavirus with these, it's like a ball with like these spiky little things, like a dog toy kind of thing. And so... <laughs> And again, for our, for our listeners, um, Dr. Lee is like making a ball with her hands, like two claws. <laughs> it's really good. Totally. Totally. Exactly. Right. It was like the coronavirus. The reason why we call it Corona is because it's got the spiky crown and Corona means spiky crown in Latin. And so those spikes, those pointy things, the, the, you know, they are proteins. And so the mRNA vaccine, it encodes not the coronavirus. It's not introducing in virus. It's just introducing the instructions for your cells to make some of the spike protein. And then what happens because the spike protein on the coronavirus, it's a, you know, it's, it's exposed out, uh, right? The spiky ball, it's the, the spikes on there. It basically in the cells, when it's expressed, that spike, that spike protein gets put on the surface, displayed on the surface of the cells that the vaccine gets into. So basically, this vaccine, it's really cool. It's, it's got these mRNA molecules packaged inside, essentially a globule of fat that then can be taken up by your cells when it's injected in. And then those cells that take it up can start to make a bunch of spike protein and display the spike protein on the surface of your cells, which then is recognized by your immune system as wait a minute, what's that thing? And they'll start, the immune system will start to make antibodies um, and it'll make eventually, hopefully some memory immune cells that can recognize something that looks like the spike protein. So that if you ever actually, your body actually encounters real SARS-CoV-2, your, your immune system will instantly recognize, oh, what are these spikes? We've seen that before. Let's get rid of this thing. So it's, it's really cool because like older vaccines, the vaccines that, you know, we've had before are these like um, the actual virus, right? Not mm -hmm. alive, but injected into people. And this way they're like synthetic, right? Like it's not actually the actual virus, but it, 
but it's doing the same thing, right? Your body is training for like when the day comes, I'll know what, what this thing is, right? And I'll know how to defeat it. Yeah, exactly. Some of the more classical approaches to making these vaccines have been what are called like attenuated viruses, or there'll be like similar vi- viruses, but, um, but like from another organism, but then kind of mod- kind of uh, sort of weakened so that it can actually make you sick, but it stirs up your immune system so that if your body ever encounters some other virus that looks a lot like what you, what you got in that vaccine, it'll be able to attack it. Um, but in this case, what's really clever about it is that it's just the instructions to make a particular part of the virus that your immune system would see first, and then it can attack it. And I, I think the reason why I'm so excited about that is because all those other methods of sort of an attenuated virus or weakened virus or some other, some other virus from some other organism, but has some similarity to the virus that you're trying to um, vaccinate against. Those other methods take a really long time to make a lot of, um, whereas the mRNA vaccine is, is not as hard and it's also easier to change the sequence pretty quickly. Um, so that if, you know, if, if you need, you need it to recognize something, if you need your immune system to recognize something slightly different, you can do that really easily. So like I, you know, a good example is like the flu vaccine, you know, sort of annually scientists have to kind of predict like, all right, well, what's this year's flu going to be? All right, let's look for some flu viruses and like inactivate them. And maybe this is maybe the approximately what's going to be right that's going to help vaccinate people this year. But you know, the flu vaccine is like, I don't know, something like 50%. I'm not an immunologist, so <laughs> I'm not a clinician. <laughs> so don't right. call me on it's this. a general statement. <laughs> this isn't being recorded. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like it's not, a hun- you know, it's not, it doesn't, it's efficacy is, is pretty good. And, but it's, it's, you know, sometimes some years it's not quite on and, and some years it's better than others, but it takes a while to kind of do that. Um, in this case, the se- it's, it's just the sequence um, that gets in- taken up by the cells and then can convert, can get your cells to basically make this molecule that then, that then your cells display and your immune system can recognize. When we have these variants of COVID-19 and you, 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 know, you have the vaccine and your body's like, okay, I recognize this, this spikiness, it, it, like how different is the spikiness um, for the, the variants, like how much is it, how, how can it deal with yeah, that? Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. So the immune system, it'll recognize it's the immune system will generate a bunch of antibodies, which will fight anything that kind of has resem- resemblance to the spike protein that you've introduced. It'll be able to recognize stuff that's exactly the same thing and stuff that looks similar, but isn't exactly the same thing. So there's some flexibility in that in our immune systems. Um, That's good. (laughs) It is really good. Certainly the, the, you know, the proof of how well something works is going to be in the data. And I think my understanding is so far, the variant that's called the UK variant, that one, our current vaccines work great against. And I think there's two other variants that people are starting to kind of get worried about. And that would be like the South African one and the Brazilian one, those particular variants. And even so, even with those, even though the, the studies seem to be that it's maybe not, our vaccines are not as 
active against those, it's still pretty good for protecting against serious disease, right? So it'll help to keep people out of the hospital, which is important. As, as we were saying, like, I think also the ability to really tweak that sequence relatively easily is very promising for being able to update it if, if we need to. So, so then like we've, we've kind of gotten to that place then, then what's the, what's the future for RNA research? You know, how can we use it in the future? Are, are all, I mean, I shouldn't say all, but are more and more vaccines going to have this now because they didn't really before. (laughs) And like, and what, what else is this going to like produce? What kind of solutions is now, are we now going to get from RNA? Yeah, it's so exciting from that point of view. I mean, you know, as, as horrible as this and disruptive as this pandemic has been, it is really just awesome that, that, that we have gone our first RNA vaccines, right? And so even before this point, some of the companies that had been working on vaccines had been developing up vaccines against other RNA-based vaccines for other things, like Moderna was working on a vaccine for Zika virus. You might remember Zika, um, you know. It's still around, right? It's still around, absolutely. (laughs) Exactly. Dengue, you know, there are a lot of countries that really suffer because of dengue. And so, and then there's also, I know that there's phase one trials now being worked on for for a universal flu shot um, that is mRNA based. So I think there's, I'm hopeful that this will, this is sort of paving the way towards having kind of more flexibility in the kinds of vaccines that can be used. And it's nice to have lots of options for things that either are changeable or have been really, you know, hard historically to vaccinate against. Now we have something that is a more flexible platform and faster turnaround potentially. And I mean, just based on these particular mRNA vaccines that we've got going, it's like the efficacy is so high. I mean, it's just like, I remember in the fall when the first Pfizer announcement came out and it was like 95% uh, efficacy um, under their particular, in their clinical trials or phase three. And I was just like, that is so amazing. <laughs> it's so amazing. And so, yeah. Because you were saying that regular vaccines don't have that kind of percentage. T- Typically not. I mean, some do, some do, but you know, I can think again, we can go back to like the flu vaccine. It's not, not nearly as high as my, as my understanding. Um, And I think too, you know, it's like, uh, there are certain things that could be improved about the current um, RNA vaccines and, and hopefully there'll be more investment in research and trying to understand how to improve it, how to start to kind of limit some of those, some of the responses that, that folks have. Still with these shots, people are, you know, some people are having kind of mild symptoms that, that don't last for a long time. It's kind of transient, but, you know, as folks in kind of investigate, like, what is it about the packaging of these things? How can we improve it so that it's less of a reaction? How can we make it more temperature sa- stable? So I was going to ask you about that, right? Like <laughs> yeah, that's all it. of these vaccines <laughs> that we're talking about RNA, they have to be at like super cold temperatures and then they, uh, and they go bad super fast, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's so interesting. I've been, I've been very curious about that, right? It's like, first of all, they go bad really fast. So like once you open a vial, you got to like get that into people's arms, right? That's like the, been the thing, like got to get it into people's arms. And then, yeah, some of the temperature requirements for Pfizer, minus 80 for the uh, Moderna, minus 20. These 20 are what? What units? Celsius, right? There we go. <laughs> yeah, Celsius. <laughs> yes, thank you. For, so so when we the, think these are the, the points I take off of students' <laughs> tests, right? You can't, no units? No. 
No, Suzanne. I just got a D. I just got a D. So minus 20 would be like your household freezer, you know, that part. And so minus 80 is like even more Celsius. Celsius. (laughs) Yeah. And so the temperature stability, I think it's interesting. And of course, a lot of this is like, I think, you know, whatever, proprietary. So it's hard to like dig into why. But I think, uh, yeah, that temperature is likely related to the in, the relative instability of RNA. It's that it's, you know, packaged in a fat droplet. So, you know, if you heat up fat, like you can sort of think about like your butter, when you heat it up, it sort of melts, right? So, you know, some of that kinetic thermal energy of temperature can be disrupting that. That is the best. I, I have not heard anyone talk about that. Like, wh- why do we need it to be cold? It's like, mm. just like when you make cookies and you have, you cut <laughs> the butter into the flour, right? Mm. And then it melts when it's in the oven, but you still want it to be like mm. held together and like kind of chunked before you put it in there, yeah. right? And then the the sort of not lasting very long I just recently learned this, that, that these vaccines actually don't have any preservatives in them. That's why they expire quickly and you have to get them into arms, which for some folks may be really comforting because it's lacking some of those preservatives that people, the CDC has said those preservatives in other vaccines is not harmful, but some people have concerns about, you know, preservatives generally. And so these don't actually have preservatives, which I thought was really interesting. You're listening to Spark Science, and we're talking to Dr. Lee about the development and application of mRNA vaccines, and also how they relate to her ongoing research here at WW. So what does this all mean for your own research then? Like, like what questions do you want to answer and what problems do you want to solve with your research with <laughs> RNA? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so we have been studying this RNA pathway that, like I say, it's in the genome has these regions that don't encode proteins. So the mRNA vaccines here, they encode the spike protein, that RNA molecule. We're really interested in the parts of the genome that allow for RNA to be made, but that those bits of RNA sequence actually don't code for anything. They can't be decoded into a protein or they're not, they don't seem to be decoded into a protein. And so we've been, we've been studying this pathway that um, takes some of those transcripts and converts them into these really short RNAs. Kind of evolutionarily, these are pathways that were thought to evolve to actually fight off viruses. So it's basically a pathway that chops up RNA uh, in a cell into small pieces and then uses those small pieces to basically trigger the degradation of RNAs that share the same sequence. But the cells over evolutionary time have co-opted them to help serve some kind of important function in the cell, be it gene regulation or organization of the genome in particular ways. And we've been trying to study the function that this pathway has in the model organism that we study. So uh, it's, it's hard to study pathways that are important for human health in humans because it's expensive <laughs> um, and also complicated. And so what we do is we like use a model. Ethically. Like ethically. Ethically complicated. Yeah, it's okay. ethically complicated. It's probably also like logistic. It's also logistically right. complicated and highly expensive. And so 
we're really interested in trying to understand these this pathway, even though it is it is conserved in humans. But we we study in a model what we call a model organism, which is a single cell creature called Tetrahymena thermophila, and it's basically a single cell creature. Normally lives in freshwater environments, um, and we've been trying to understand what this RNA interference pathway does for cells, um, and. We're starting to uncover some clues that I'm really excited about, but we have, we're trying to get this one paper out soon, soon, hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, and you actually have students working on that research, right? So students will, will be on this paper, right? Oh, yes. There's a very long list of students who've worked in my lab over a few years. So this is, I think, the this particular manuscript that we're working on. We're just trying to put the final touches on this year. Um, uh, so it kind of stretches that back, I would say, at least three or four years of work has gone into this, this study. And we, I think we finally actually have a handle on what this pathway is doing in our cells. And what I'm really excited about is it seems like this, what this pathway is doing in our cells is something that we've been getting whispers for happening in a lot of different organisms, including humans that has some really important implications in terms of the conservation of this pathway and in terms of like the molecular mechanisms of this pathway. I really like you. I mean, you, you can tell you're really excited about your research, which is great, but also like for me, a non-biologist, right? Like many of our listeners are not biologists. It's, it's surprising for us to hear that there are so many things about the human body we don't understand or about cells, right? And so it's really interesting that you're saying like, we have to understand what this specific pathway is doing because we didn't know beforehand, right? Right. Um, the origins of the COVID vaccine go back 20 years to a time when people were just trying to understand something like and were driven by their curiosity um, but, you know, didn't have the, didn't know where it was going to lead, you know, and it's just these kind of fundamental discoveries of how do things work? How can we do things that put us in such a good position last year, this time, basically, to have something like a vaccine, you know, it's just, you can never know what your fundamental discoveries are going to lead to. And because we don't really totally understand, like we're still discovering biology, we're still discovering physics, we're still discovering astrophysics every day. Science is a, is a dynamic thing, right? It's it, all of the fields have new stuff happening, um, which brings me to pop culture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because there are so many movies out there with like, you know, cloning dinosaurs. <laughs> um, and, and, um, you know, um, the movie Evolution with David Duchovny and uh, just like things like Mutants, mm. X-Files, oh, I mean, yeah. X-Men, stuff like that. Whenever you're seeing that in the media, utilize stereotypes or misconceptions in in society, like what what do you have anything that you've seen in the past where you're just like, there's no way we could do that. I mean, I think the thing that strikes me, and even with the examples you mentioned, and and I and I think I've confessed to you that I'm like a Shonda Rhimes fan. And so like I watch yeah. sometimes I've watched like Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> and there are these like there are scientists, you know, there's this depiction of scientists who are like involved in some like research, and it's like this one person, and then they've like discovered something amazing all of a sudden, and it like everyone recognizes it's like really important and everyone cares, and they like win all these great awards. And like that science doesn't work that way there isn't you know there's it's rare that people really recognize the importance of something right when it happens right 
<laughs> like, <laughs> like it's I love that that you took away. They're like, it doesn't happen this fast. Uh, my husband's a lawyer. <laughs> and I remember I had a friend in, in a graduate school. And when I was getting my PhD, my husband had just gotten his first job as a lawyer. And my friend wanted to go to court with him. And, and she was like, can I just please watch you in court? Because is, is it just like Boston legal? <laughs> <laughs> And Jake's like, it is not like Boston. Right, right exactly, <laughs> exactly. And in, and in, and it's like, and it doesn't happen, you know, in the, in the case of a scientific discovery, it's not just one person who like makes this amazing discovery that everybody's like, wow. Um, yeah, it's like years, you know, and then like going back to the, the vaccine, you know, like 20 years of discovery, 20 years of work of lots of different people involved. Thank you so much to Dr. Suzanne Lee for being a guest on our show. It's a great privilege to have a friend so well-versed on the complexities of RNA. And if you haven't already, Spark Science would like to encourage you to get any COVID-19 vaccine available, mRNA or not. We can do this. We're almost out. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Today's episode was recorded in Bellingham, Washington, in my house, on my computer, during the great pandemic that's still going on in April 2021. Our producers are Suzanne Blaze and myself, Regina Barber-DeGraff. Our audio engineers for today's episode are Ariel Shiley and Zarek Coakley. If you missed any of our show, go to our website at sparksciencenow.com. And if there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at SparkScienceNow. Thank you for listening to Spark Science.